0: In a city that is ever-changing, some things have managed to stay the same. Hi, I'm Caroline Rotante, filling in for George Bodarchy, and this is Cityscape. On this week's show, we're focusing on two New York City family businesses that have stood the test of time, one that's now in its fifth generation. First up, Jeff Holzman. He's CEO and president of one of the nation's oldest doll companies. Goldberger was founded in 1916 and is based in New York, New York. Here's George's interview with Jeff.
1: Jeff, thank you so much for taking the time to talk with me. My pleasure.
2: So what is the history of this company? Wow, 100-year-old company, history. I mean, from when we were throwing dolls out the window to ship uh, in Soho? Literally? Literally. If it was raining, we wouldn't ship. So the dolls used to be made in, uh, out of wood, and they would be put into boxes that looked like shoeboxes. And the guy downstairs, we didn't have an elevator at the time. Of course, I wasn't around at that time. But uh, they would throw the dolls out the window to the guy down below. And these are, of course, stories that were passed on to me. And we started off in Soho, uh, New York. And then later on, we moved out to Brooklyn, where we had a much larger factory. And we did have an elevator there, so we were able to ship. So 1916, Mr. G, who started the company, he was the guy that actually cut the cloth for real teddy bears. And when I say teddy bears, I mean Theodore Roosevelt teddy bears. So that's where it came from, and he was a master at that. And I don't know how he got into making dolls, but dolls were a natural transition, and he got his son-in-law and son into the business. And then um, I came into the business by way of many different, uh, different avenues. And uh, to the chagrin on my wife. She said, don't go into the family business. I said, honey, why? I get to go to China. I get to learn the stuff in the factory. It looks like it's great. We use my my art background. She goes, all right, but, uh, you know, I don't want to hear about it. And uh, when I went to my father-in-law and I said, I said, dad, you know, you've got your sales director 74. I said, I think you need some young blood in this company. And to his, to his credit, he said, it's not up to me. And it's not up to Seymour, who was his brother-in-law. It's up to that 74-year-old guy. So he says, have lunch with him, and if you two can get along, then great. And sure enough, Mel, who was my uh, boss, and I, we got along great. And uh, I kind of brought this old company to try to bring it into the future. I mean, we weren't computerized. We were nothing. Um, so what they did was we were 98% manufacturing our stuff in Brooklyn. And we had, at one time, we must have had uh, 300 to 400 union employees in Brooklyn. We had three buildings, and we were shipping to everybody in the United States and elsewhere. And it was really quite something, because you'd walk into this factory, and it was like a Rube Goldberg experience. I think it was put together with chewing gum and spit. And it was so much fun to walk through the factory and see the product being made. I mean, I literally got a chance to see how everything was made. So when I started with the company, I had a very good sales background, and they said, "Okay, we're going to send the kid to China. Can't do any damage there. We make everything here." So I went to China and I saw the line that we were making in China, and I said, "Whoa!" I said, "You got to, you got to bring that into the fold." I mean, it's like a stepchild. And I said to them, "I said, guys, we're getting killed." said so we're going to have to move our operation overseas because it's not it's, it's the retailers that are demanding more money from us or more profit. That said, how hard was that for a New York City based company? Well, you know what? It was it was really hard because uh everybody who worked for the company had worked for the company for generations. I mean, we were it was it was like people would come here uh, from Puerto Rico, and they would work here in the summertime, and they'd go home in the wintertime, and the next summer they'd come back to work at the company. So it was a pretty big family, and it was kind of tough to to do it. And luckily, we were able to do it in bits and pieces. We didn't just close it down. We, you know, we kind of moved the operation very slowly to allow everybody to get, you know, find other jobs and stuff. But it was tough. Let's talk about the products. Did it start with only one type of doll? Wow, Goldberger made everything. Goldberger made walking dolls. They made dolls with uh, what we used to call dolls plus came with a stroller. uh, I I mean, you name it, we did it. Uh, I, I was at Toy Fair one year, and Mel, my you know my predecessor, said to me, "Let's make three, you know, three of these." I go, "Why?" Because he says, "Because out of the three, the buyer will buy one." So we would make three of something, and then of course the buyer would buy one of them, and it would be a doll and a in a stroller or a doll in a carriage or something like that. And uh, it was it was quite smart of him, and we would always, uh, you know, we'd, we'd have a whole line of product. And one of the products we made, which we still make today, uh, was our Softina doll. Now, back then, Softina was a process where you'd have a one-skin body. And think of think of the old uh, chicken hanging on a you know, on a hook, where we would drop a pellet into this into this vinyl mold and all of a sudden it would grow and it would get bigger and bigger and bigger and then we'd put a head on it but the funny thing is you'd watch this thing going down the line and my father-in-law did he made it was called slush molding and it made a very fine skin and it really felt great and I think Mattel had made a doll like that you know uh, previously or around the same time Mattel stopped it after they couldn't sell a billion of them, and Goldberger continued making it for the next 50 years. So we still have our Softina doll, and we, don't, we no longer make it with foam, but we make it with air, and uh, it's one of our biggest sellers now. How varied are the dolls in your line? Well, what we've done is this. Um, we're Being an old company and being a company that unfortunately did not brand itself Because we had so many customers, and we were making for everybody. Uh, When I came into the picture, that whole area was changing. And so we really had to decide who we were going to be. And so what we did was we decided to become the experts in zero to three. We noticed that kids started playing with dolls less and less as they got older, Listen, today when a kid hits four, they want your cell phone. Okay, so um, we, were up against, we were up against a lot of competition here. You know, it's hard to deal, be up against Samsung and Apple. But I decided that we were going to make a line of dolls for kids that hadn't learned to say I want yet. So this was going to be up to mom and up to grandma, and we were going to make great product for very young ages. So we are now the experts in product zero to three. So when I told the people in the factory, I said, guys, you know that great mold we have with the beauty salon and stuff? We're no longer going to make that. The moans, the groans that we had. I said, you know what? You have to be specific in what you're going to do. And you have to let the people out there know that you are the experts in that. We can't make everything for everybody. That's how we got to zero to three, two babies first. But still a wide variety for the zero to three crowd. That is correct. Uh, what we try to do is a lot of our products, we make them solution-based products. So if mom has a problem with putting a child to sleep, we make a doll that will help in that regard. We have a doll called Molly Manners. If uh, I don't know a grandparent out there who, who thinks that their child or their grandchild has enough manners. So we, we try to help mom come up with a solution to a problem that they might have. And that's what we do.
1: You have dolls here on the shelves behind you. I see giggles. I see a doll that kisses. Try me, I kiss. it says.
2: OK, well I 'll give you a demonstration since we're audio. Uh, what we try to do with our product, and you're looking at a, a little doll here with a very simple mechanism in it, and our dolls are made so that they can be washed, and they can also be they're also guaranteed for life. But the easy part of it is And we have this doll in Spanish, and we have it in French, and uh, it's one of our biggest sellers. And the idea here is that we make the doll, and we make most of our dolls the same way, with what we call a sanity pocket. That's for mom. What does that mean exactly? Well, if you kept hearing that noise over and over and over again, you're going to lose your mind. So mom can literally go into the back of the doll, pull out the mechanism, wash the doll, and put the mechanism back when she's ready. And so we call that the sanity pocket. You have dolls that make animal noises or sing about animals as you try me, I sing? Yeah, we have dolls that, uh, we try to do dolls that might be a little bit educational. So we have a doll called uh, Sing and Learn, our Sing and Learn doll. Hi, let's sing and learn. That's me on a good day (laughs) singing. So it's a very simple, but again, this style is age graded for zero and up, and it teaches the ABCs. If you press it again, which I won't do, it will it will count uh, one to ten, and so the child begins to to learn to learn language, to learn how to count, and to learn the ABCs. We have a great group of guys out in uh, Indiana who do our songs for us, and uh, we've actually have children who do the recording. So. Uh, it's, been a, it's been a great little marriage between us and the guys out in Indiana. How frequently do you get together to brainstorm new doll ideas? Well, we are always looking at new ideas. I mean, uh, there's not a day that goes by that you know, I don't come in with something crazy. Uh, one of our, my last crazy ideas was a diversity doll. And I said, well, what could we do? And I said, you know what? Let's make it and mold it in weird colors. You know, there's no white, there's no black. There's green, there's blue, there's pink. And so let's make this doll. Now, when I first developed it, everybody thought I was crazy. They they said this looks terrible. It's nuts. And then as we progressed, we decided let's make them characters. So we made a pink princess. We made a blue pirate, and we made a green witch. You know, being from New York, seeing those posters of Wicked all over the place, we said hey, this looks great. And so we made it with a face that we were very successful with. A long time ago, and I had taken it out of our line for one reason. And the reason was that the basic line that we have that you're looking at, they're all happy babies. There's not one baby doll in my line that cries. I don't like a crying baby, and I don't think other moms like to hear that going on. So this doll was a little bit sad, and, but we sold lots of it in its heyday. But I said, this is the perfect doll because it brings it's empathetic and it sucks its thumb and it has a great color and it also sings a song and in this case again we have we call it our friendship babies so as it sings it's either a german beer song or it's a friendship baby song (laughs) and uh, we try to make them short so that mom doesn't go crazy and Everybody thought that I was crazy when I came up with this, and they said, you know, we're going to have a really hard time selling this at retail. I said, you know what, I don't really care. I said, we're gonna, if we can't sell it at retail, we're going to put it online because people will understand it, and they will buy it. But when we showed it to our buyers, they all got it immediately. They all understood that this was a diversity doll, that it was empathetic. It was, it was terrific. So uh, I think we're going to do well with it. So this is, this is the crazy stuff that we come up with. How great is it for the family
1: that this business continues to be in the family? Not a lot of businesses in New York City these days
2: can say that. You know, you're right. It's, um, uh, it's been in the family a long time, and um, you know we're growing it uh, not just at retail but online. We decided that um, more and more people should see our product. Uh, and we're going we're to try to carry it through as long as we can. I mean, statistically, going three generations is, a, is very tough for a business, and it hasn't been easy. This company, with the hundred and some odd years that it's been in business, you know, they have gone through you know, three wars and how I don't know how many recessions and how many depressions, and we're still here. And it's, uh, it's a testament to the family to keep the business going. How long have you been in this location here in the West 20s? Uh, this will be 11 years. We've been, we've been in the, on 25th Street, but we were at the 205th Avenue building and the 1107 building for 30 years. What would you say has evolved most
1: in the last 100 years?
2: What's interesting that most people don't really realize it is that um, the American toy industry really was created after World War One or during World War One, where most of the toys for American kids came from Germany. Because of the war, you weren't able to get any toys. A lot of the refugees that came to the United States came from Germany and they were in the business. So they created the American toy industry. But uh, not until after World War II did the materials to toys change. Because dolls were made out of rubber. Now, in World War II, all the rubber came from the South Pacific. So now, you couldn't get rubber to make dolls or anything like that so you had porcelain dolls which were made in germany and now you had rubber dolls where you couldn't get the rubber so the us military thank you the us military came up with vinyl and vinyl is what dolls are made out of today and that changed the game i mean you wouldn't have had you wouldn't have barbie today you wouldn't have the dolls that we make today without the advent of, of those kind of materials so that was the biggest changer does it keep you young, working around all of these dolls all the time, thinking about creations for the zero to three? Well, I guess it's uh, the kid in me. I, you know, I love playing with toys. But when I was a child, you know, playing with uh, toy guns and stuff was was always very popular. But when I tell people that I make baby dolls, there's always a smile on their face, and uh, you you just always get elicit that reaction. I mean, it's just one of those things. Really, you make baby dolls? How great! Although. Since we are the experts in zero to three, we have a new line of product for uh, 55 and older. We're making dolls now for uh, people with dementia. Oh, wow. And these dolls are not toys. They are actually uh, weighted. I've become quite an expert. When I became an expert in zero to three, I am now an expert in, in uh, dolls for people with dementia. We found that it can relieve stress in ter- with people with dementia. And being that we're experts in how to make a doll, we decided to find out how to make the best possible doll. So one of the things that we've learned is that the doll has to have moving eyes. Go to sleep eyes, we call it. Because if a, if a person is trying to put the baby to bed and the eyes don't close, you're basically adding stress, not taking stress away. So we find it very uh, important that our, the eyes open and close. We also infuse a vinyl with lavender, because lavender is a, a scent that helps promote calmness. So we add that to our product. And the doll itself is all, we made it all vinyl. And we did that on purpose because we don't know how many people might handle this product. And with a vinyl doll, we're able to create a product that can be easily sanitized. So we've come up with this Alzheimer product, which can be bought on Amazon. How did that come to your consciousness? Wow, we should look at this for people with dementia. When my father was getting older, my father was uh, married three times. And uh, I was at home and his, his wife at that time was suffering from a little bit of dementia. And I brought a doll with me. And I saw a transformation in her that was just remarkable. And um, I discovered that it was adorable. I mean, she was taking care of the baby. And and she even said, I know it's a doll. Did she? Didn't she? At what point did she or didn't she? But you know what? It, It gave her such joy that I said, you know what? I have to take this to another step. And I've been studying this and it's taken me two years or so to produce this product, and we've just launched that through a, a separate company that we have created called DH Beacon, named after my dad and after my wife's dad. We have it's Dopelt and Holtzman and Beacon, which is the spread of light and whatever. So we thought that it would be a great name, and this is how we came up with the product. And besides the dolls, we we're also looking at other product that would help people with dementia. And this is this is what keeps you young because you're now coming up with ideas not just for the doll community, but we're coming up for another community. Where we, we make weighted blankets. Anything that we think can be helpful, we look into. Jeff, thank you so much for your time. My pleasure. Thank you.
0: More information about Goldberger at babiesfirstdoll.com. Now on to another long-standing business in New York City, an eyewear company that's been around for more than 100 years. Moscott Eyewear was founded in 1915 in Lower Manhattan. Cityscape host George Bodarkey talked with CEO Harvey Moscott and his son, Moscott's chief design officer, Zachary Moscott.
3: Hi, I'm Dr. Harvey Moscott of Moscott, New York City.
1: And what
4: generation are you, Harvey?
1: I'm fourth generation. And sitting here is fifth generation?
4: Correct. I'm Zachary Moscott. I'm Harvey's son. I'm the chief design officer at Moscott.
1: Now let's go back to
4: 1915, who started
1: Moscot?
3: Great-grandpa Hyman came here actually in 1899 through Ellis Island and um, was an optician from the old country, set up a pushcart here on Orchard Street and did what he knew how to do, which was to sell eyeglasses. Came from where? He came from Eastern Europe, the Minsk-Pinsk area, which is part of Poland now, that region. Didn't speak English. So was he an eye doctor? Nope, he was an optician. So he sold eyeglasses and um, fabricated eyeglasses, putting prescription lenses in frames. But back then, you really just picked something off of a pushcart, and if it improved your vision, you bought it. It wasn't there was no formalized testing.
4: And the, and the pushcart today remains our logo for the brand.
1: Oh, is that right? Fantastic. So how long after he started selling on the street did he actually open a brick and mortar?
3: The story has it that in 1915 they signed a lease for their first brick and mortar with his son, Saul, was, was part of that um, initiative as well.
1: Now, was it expected that you would get into the business, that you, Zach, would get into the business?
3: Well, the business has always been part of my life with my dad, third generation, who ran the shop for, for many, many years on the Lower East Side. You know, I loved helping people. Um, I loved playing guitar, but I couldn't sing. And dad always said, you know what, do both. But play your guitar at night and come to work and you did well in school and I loved helping people and improving their vision and I loved the merge the merging of um fashion and healthcare all in one field
4: I think yeah I, I think in the in the preceding generations it was always expected to join the business I think Hyman expected Sal I think Sal expected Joel my grandfather to join the business and I think Joel expected Harvey his son to join the business as the first optometrist. So they were all opticians. Harvey was the first optometrist. And although I don't think it was necessarily expected of me, you know, being in, in the later uh, 20th century to join the business, I had a personal interest to be a part of the club per se. And so I found my own unique path into the business, which was through design and fashion. So that was my way into the business. So you're creating the eyewear of today, Yes, I'm focused on the collections today, and a lot of the creative that we put out today, and the way we communicate to our fans today, in a digital realm as well. How has the collection evolved in the last one hundred plus years? Um, interestingly enough, a lot of it has hasn't changed so much. You know, we have a collection that we stay true to all of the authenticity uh, and the identity of of the same frames and styles we've been selling for decades. And we call that our original collection. But we do also have a newer collection called the Spirit Collection, which retains all of the same authentic details, period details, and a lot of the same high-quality materials and craftsmanship of the original's collection. But again, those are newer designs and new colorways and things like that.
1: So are you going back into the archives to sort of look at what you created in the past to create something with a modern look to it using that historical perspective?
4: Yes, exactly. So we have a, we've built up this family archive over a century worth of time in the eyewear industry, and we are constantly referencing those archives and always looking at our past you know, to, to see what we can do in the future. What would you say is still the most popular frame? We have one style that's become renowned around the world. Uh, it's called the lemtash. And that's a very popular style because of its shape. Um, it's perfectly round, it also perfectly square. So it fits a lot of face types, and we do it in multiple colorways and also sizes, which is something that we're, we talk about a lot. Um, people come to mascot for our expertise in fit and optics, and so the way that we provide some of that is with multiple sizing and making sure people can find the right pair of glasses for their face.
1: I understand you have a model called the Yenta? named after an aunt in the family? There was a lot of Yentas in the Moscot family, but um,
3: that particular one was um, an Aunt Etta. We like to use names from our family to name our original frames, so they're dear to our heart. Um, some colloquialisms, some names of family members, um, Yiddish names, things like that. Now,
1: you're the first doctor to be here at Moscot.
3: Yes, first optometrist um, in the family that was part of the, the Moscow team.
1: Now, are you the one who specializes in computer vision syndrome? Sure. I
3: practiced um, optometry for 27 years. Now, as a CEO, I spend more time on the business side of things. But I did have a passion for computer vision anomalies and computer vision eye strain, which is so prevalent in today's world.
1: Is that unique to a store like this?
3: Well, not really, but it's something that we'd like to, no pun intended, focus on as, you know, if, you, if, if 90% of people that work on a computer for more than two hours usually experience some symptoms of computer vision syndrome, as we call it.
1: This location is where in the history, this Orchard Street location?
3: This is very dear. Um, I always like to say we were born on Orchard Street and will probably die on Orchard Street. It's fortunate that we've been able to survive. We were um, pushed across the street as a result of the building being sold, most of the businesses that started here on push carts and in the early part of the 20th century have left. Maybe there's about three that still remain, and it's, it's very important for us to remain here. It's our roots. It's what we stand for. We like to associate ourselves with the sensibilities of downtown, um, the creative environment that's always been here, which was the, our core archetype customer, was that creative, confident, artistic individual, and it's still who we kind of still attract um, globally now, as a matter of fact, as well.
1: Do you have customers that have been coming here for generations themselves, people who now are their grandkids, their grandkids?
4: Absolutely. And, it, and it's something that, you know, I connect to emotionally as well. I've been on the sales floor, um, which is not where I spend most of my time, but I certainly spend some time there to experiment with designs and interact with our customers. And I've been taken back one time when I encountered a granddaughter. Um, she was talking about how her grandmother frequented the mascot shop, and here I was as fifth generation, multiple generations later, interacting with a customer of multiple generations, and that was something special. Yeah.
1: How much, in addition to selling eyewear, are you selling New York City? Because you are so deeply rooted in New York City.
3: I think that's a big point, you know when you put on an eyeglass frame, whether it's an acetate, which is a plastic frame from any brand, when you put one on with Moscow, you are putting on a piece of history. You are putting on a piece of downtown New York City. It's really ingrained in what and who we are.
1: You
4: touched on this, but how much are you relying on e-commerce these days? Um, I think communicating in a new way is really important. You know, we're 103 years old, but we're we're still young, and, and you know, I'm fifth generation, and I guess, a millennial myself, although that word sometimes gets loosely thrown around, especially by my dad. <laughs> but, um, it, you know, it's, it's, we're focused on brick and mortar. We're focused on telling our story, and I think that's key as to what Harvey said. You know, we're, we're unique in that we're a family business. We're 103 years old, and we have, a, you know, an experience that we pride ourselves on, and so that's a big part of what we do.
3: I think it's the um, mere fact that we're, we are a it's a real story we're not a um, internet company that started online so there's a sense of um, everything today is so virtual in our world this is real it's tangible it's it's a true story
1: now your story also involves giving back to the community moscots gave away free eyewear during World War II and you still give back to the community yeah my grandfather was um, very much ingrained in the fabric of the Lower East Side Merchant
3: Association Lesma is what it was called back then And during the um, depression, he worked with an ophthalmologist, Dr. Slaughter, down here, and he provided eye tests and assisted people in need during the depression. And it kind of inspired me. And in 2008, um, I was examining eyes, and I felt like I needed to do something to give back to New York, which has been so great to the Moscot brand. And we went out and started a um, a, a 501c3 called Moscot Mobile Eyes. And we go out as a team every three months, and we work with organizations that have um, needy New Yorkers that do not have access to eye care or eyeglasses, and provide the services for free. And we do it as a team, and it's a great sense of pride and a great sense of um, fulfillment that we get by doing this.
1: In addition to selling eyewear, you also showcase music. I'm not aware of another <laughs> eyewear establishment that does that.
3: Yeah, well, like I said initially when you asked me about becoming an optometrist, music has been something I've always loved. Um, A guitar player. I'm a songwriter. Um, Again, I couldn't sing, so optometry was another great avenue, but it was an opportunity to bring music into the brand. It was a rainy Saturday about 16 years ago. There were no patients. Played my guitar. My buddy came over. People came into the shop, and I said, this is a great way to bring something that is really true and dear to my heart into the brand. Zach is a singer-songwriter. Most of our staff are artists and fantastic musicians. We tend to attract that type of... um, employee, and it's become something that we love to do and um, perpetuate um, with Muscat Music. Every couple of months, we have a showcase here in the gallery, invite our fans, people become aware of our brand, and um, it's a, overall a great event and something we love to do.
1: Zach, do you perform here?
4: We They have an in-house band called the All Stars, but um, I think what's cool about Muscat Music, and it's it's similar in other things that we do in the business, so while we have these these physical events here with a lot of up-and-coming artists that have really evolved in their own careers. We also try to convey the experience to our fans around the world that can't be here physically in the Lower East Side on Orchard Street. So we have also kind of a sub-program of Moscow music that we call All Eyes On and so that's something that we translate digitally through our social channels and with our fans and we have we interact with different types of artists, and we interview them, and we talk about their relationship to Moscot and eyewear, and it's a cool thing that we're doing as well.
1: Harvey, thanks so much for your time. Thanks so much. Zach, thank you.
4: Thank you.
0: Dr. Harvey Moscott is CEO, director, and an optometrist at Moscot Eyewear. And Zachary Moscot is the company's chief design officer. More information at Moscot.com. And that's it for this week's Cityscape. My name is Caroline Rotante. George Bodarki will be back next week. Thank you so much for listening.